501 years ago on October 31st, a man named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Not as some triumphant act of defiance, but to understand the position of the church. He saw errors in practice and teaching. And Luther wanted to see healing and restoration for those who were in such error. So he nailed the paper to the door and he looked forward to a conversation that was to follow. But that conversation never happened. And so here we are over 500 years later commemorating an event that has proven to be one of the most divisive events over the past millennium. Luther wanted reform. He did not want a new thing. It's interesting, if you think about Jesus, Jesus, uh, a lot of people would say Jesus started the church 2,000 years ago, but Jesus did not start the Christian church. Jesus simply continued what was before with the prophets of old. It was not a new thing, it was the continuation of Judaism, the full revelation of God, Yahweh, the one true God. And so it was for Luther. Luther wanted a united church, not a divided church. He did not seek to start something new, but to reform what had been cast into darkness. So that what Jesus said in the Gospel of John may become true. As Jesus prays to his Father and says, May they be one, just as you and I are one. Luther had no desire to make a name for himself. It was never about winning and losing He wanted to simply remain faithful to God. Not the God of anger and wrath who would use his power to abuse those he created that Luther had grown to believe in, but rather this God of mercy and love who he had come to now know, who chose to manifest his love in a very real way through his Son, Jesus Christ, taking on flesh. God became enfleshed, incarnate, so that all could receive the outpouring of his love. And it was the law that brought Luther to his knees time and time again. The weight of guilt and shame we all have come to know. The knowledge of sin that can, can hang heavy on our shoulders to the point that Luther would go to confession for hours at a time. He knew it was a burden too great for any one man to bear. That he needed a savior, not self-reliance. And he saw that God did not give this impossible task to man, but rather sent and took, his, took on flesh and dwelt among us. Became known to us in the personhood of Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. That our God suffered horribly at the very hands he created. That the very men he made in his image and likeness would kill him. But God raised Jesus up on the last day so that all who believed in him may have eternal life. And this very Jesus who took on flesh for us now comes to us through the waters of baptism and the body and blood given through Eucharist so that we may continue to receive his life to put on Christ. So that his invisible love becomes visible and physical means that he comes to us. That we on our knees, God comes to us and offers a hand and picks us up and pours out upon us his love and his mercy, takes that burden of sin so we no longer have to carry it. And such a simple message, such a basic truth of Christianity was a dangerous message for Luther and others to preach. 
Because there were many who had failed to recognize law, the law of God. There were many who had failed to recognize any sin or any wrongdoing. And if there's no sin, there's no need for repentance. There's no need for a Savior. And it was into this dark time Luther steps and seeks to bring the light of Christ to dispel the darkness. Luther risked his life multiple times doing this simple deed. They sought to kill him. And others who'd gone before him had died for proclaiming this gospel message. Why would you do that? Why would you put your life on the line for this simple message? Because he feared God. And he desired to glorify God more than he feared man or even the works of Satan himself. Listen to the words he writes in the hymn we heard right at the beginning of worship tonight, A a Mighty Fortress. Were they to take our house, goods, honor, child, or spouse, though life be wretched away, they cannot win the day, the kingdom's ours forever. Luther writes this against the powers of Satan, against the minions of darkness, as if they're real things, because they are. And Luther was all too well of his attacks, the prince of this world. That Satan himself had got his grasp on the church and had darkened and twisted the hearts of those who were in places of power. And so he writes this hymn of complete reliance on God. And when Luther wrote it, he and Katie were actually caring for those who were suffering the Black Plague, the, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, a plague that was brutal beyond all belief. And Katie and Martin would go and they would care for those who no one else would care for because you could catch it and become dead yourself. And while they were caring, it was that Katie was pregnant. And not long after the birth of their child, Elizabeth, just a few short months later, she died. And take they our life, house, goods, honor, child, or spouse. Though life be wretched away, they cannot win the day. The kingdom's ours forever. He was not spouting out some theological jargon. This was life. This was life with the real God, the God of heaven and earth creator of all things, revealed in his son Jesus Christ, who walked alongside Luther through such great suffering, even the loss of his own child. A Christ who bore his own wounds and his own scars alongside ours to offer healing, who knew what it is to suffer, to die. He is this healer who is sympathetic because he understands. And Luther truly believed that as soon as people heard this message of the gospel, as soon as people heard the good news of Jesus Christ come to save them, that their hearts would be opened, that they would receive this outpouring of love, that they would be completely and utterly transformed, they would be free from the bondage of sin and be, be filled with joy and exuberance. But they weren't. His desire for unity gave birth to great division. Rome sought his death. Others began using his message and his movement for their own political and personal gains, such as Henry VIII. 
Others began crafting their own and varied forms of Christianity, throwing out everything that was before, throwing out over a thousand years of history and faithful teaching in order to create something that fit to their whims and to their fancies and their desires. And here Luther was stuck, finding himself running for his life on one end of the spectrum and on the other end, trying to make a stand for the historic faith in Jesus. But in the midst of this, while there were extremes on both ends, the majority of people simply didn't care. They heard the gospel, but nothing stirred in their hearts. They heard about this freedom from bondage of sin and self-reliance, but they were simply too bothered taking care of themselves to be bothered by such things. 500 years later, is it any different? Religious division continues to grow. The current religious scene of North American Christianity could be described as a la carte Christianity. You can pick and choose your theology, your practice, your position on social issues, whatever it may be, you can pick and choose. And there's probably a church somewhere around that you can find to make sure that everything you believe is what they believe. And so you're never challenged by Jesus. You just find the Jesus that agrees with you and tells you you're always right. I fear that many within the church could tell How wrong everybody else is. How all these other people are making mistakes and have poor theology. But they don't understand the position their own church holds. They don't understand the teaching of their own body of believers. We live in an age where plenty of people know about Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. They've they've heard the name. But does anyone really care? And, and I don't mean just care, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. I mean, I mean, sell all you have and follow me. Care about Jesus. And I think it's all too easy to just throw in the towel and say, well, it's just too hard, Pastor. This is just the way the world is. Why does the church pray for healing in the face of death? Why, why does the church pray for peace? in the midst of war? Why does the church pray for unity in the midst of division? Because God is God. He's all-powerful. He's able to accomplish and do these things. And we know God desires unity, not false unity based on deception and ignoring the truth, but a real unity based upon discussion and honest reflection on the scriptures and who God is. I, like many of you, probably came from a split family. My father was raised Catholic. My mother was raised Methodist. But they desired a unity within their marriage so that they became Lutheran. And eventually, through a series of events, LCMS Lutherans, where both my brother and I now serve as pastors. So can there be unity? Yes. Yes. If it worked for my parents, why can't it work for others? And even on a larger scale. Yet even within my own family, the pain of division remains. I do not commune with my extended family. I do look forward to the heavenly banquet where I partake in a meal with them and there is no longer division. I pray for the souls of many of my family members who have left the church, forgotten the church, or simply rejected Jesus himself. And so within my very family, I pray for healing, and I pray for peace, and I pray for unity. And do not celebrate division, I mourn it. 
It's like a piece of glass that, that once cracked over time worsens and worsens until it eventually shatters. But I believe in a God who heals division. Can heal even the greatest division. Did God not already heal the division between God and man? Has he not already overcome the chasm of sin and brought to us a relationship with him and to each other? We say here at Trinity we're an evangelical Catholic community. What does that mean? That means we believe in the gospel of the church, of Christ. Evangelical, it means the good news. And Catholic, meaning united, we believe in Jesus. The church finds union, is united. We say we believe in the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, and what they say about our faith and what we believe. We preach Christ the crucified. We strive as best we are able on this humanly side to preserve the historic worship of the church along with the celebration of God's gifts through the sacraments. And we believe that these gifts are where God is truly present and comes to us, not in some spiritual aloof way, but in physical, tangible, real ways that we encounter and we can interact with and brings healing to us and to our communities. And we don't neglect the richness of our past, thinking that we always are doing it better and we're smarter and we're more enlightened now and those were all a bunch of fools back in the past. We try to honor and respect the heritage that has been passed on to us. Not 500 years of tradition, but millenniums of teaching and practice. We desire to remain faithful to God in teaching and practice because He's always been faithful to us. And in the midst of all this, there's then no way to boast. There's nothing we can boast about ourselves. Look what I've done. Look what I've gained. All we can do is boast in Christ and glorify God. And by glorifying God, we pass on to future generations what the generations before us has given to us, a beautiful and rich heritage given to us by God, filled with his truth, which sets us free. We don't stop proclaiming the gospel we have received. We don't stop speaking the truth because it's a hard word in a world that is full of modern sensibilities. We don't mock or attack those who believe different from us, but we seek to understand and learn through conversation and through study of the scripture. Speak and discuss. We don't assault people with this truth. We propose it. As God once so gently proposed to us, we lay it before them with all of its beauty and with all of its truth. We ask them to simply ponder it and we pray the Holy Spirit does his work of conversion. You cannot force the freedom of the gospel upon other people. To force freedom from bondage becomes bondage. We draw them to the cross of Christ where we see sin, where we see death, where we see healing. And we should, brothers and sisters, in the midst of a divided world, desire unity. We seek to live out the intention of Luther and the early reformers to be faithful to God. And even 500 years later, we anxiously await a time to have a conversation that we pray gives birth to true unity. So I exhort you this Reformation Day. I encourage you, I, I, I beg of you to remain faithful to God and to receive his gifts 
Do not neglect the great gifts we have been given. I exhort you to grow in knowledge. Read your scriptures. Oh, I know them. Read them again and again and again. Being grossed by the word of God. And read your catechism, that little book you received when you were 12. You can open it up and read it. I get to teach that every year and I still learn from it. And if you think you're beyond that, go to Amazon and buy the large catechism and read that. Grow in knowledge. Learn what you believe. Learn the faith we have been given. And finally, brothers and sisters, come to the cross of Christ daily. In your homes, in your work, with your family, come to the cross daily upon your knees and offer your sins up to the Lord so that God may take you by the hand, lift you up, relieving you of that burden and giving you a newness of life. Brothers and sisters, let us not neglect what we have received. Let us not neglect this great gift we have been handed down throughout the generations. But let us embrace it daily. Not out of obedience or obligation, but with great joy. Truly living in the freedom we have received from sin. The freedom of the gospel. Bought for us by the precious blood of Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.